everybody. Welcome to the Weird World Podcast. My name's Gary. I'm Emma. I'm Dean. What are we doing today, Dean? Today, we are bringing you an April's Fool <gasps> episode. We know that you folks are too smart to be fooled by an April's Fool episode. It's not okay? April's Fool. It's April April's, Fools. April Fools. Yeah. Whatever. I get that. I, I, I've heard it both ways. No, you haven't. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. So it's April's Fool. April no. Fools. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna be able to do that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm gonna do it. There's there, the one fool in April. Is that yes. what? Carrie. Yes. Okay. It's very clear. One person. It's all <laughs> one month. Yep. Multiple fools. Okay. Right. Oh, right. Well. Anyway, we don't think you guys would fall for just any old made up story and believe it. Our listeners are too smart for that. Way too smart for that. Very. So what we're gonna do here is use a technique. By the used by the great Jonathan Frakes. Who's that? He was the host of Beyond Belief Factor Fiction, where every, each week, oh, I know, what many many years ago on I don't know what Sci-Fi Channel maybe, they would bring three stories, two of which were fake, one of which is real. You, the viewer, or in this case, you, the listener, have to guess which one is the real story, which oh, two are the yeah. fake stories. Isn't there also a game Two Truths and One Lie? Or uh, yeah, very two, possibly that there is. Is it Two Truths and One Lie? Or two w- Truths and a Lie. Yeah, it's like a icebreaker game. Yeah, people I'm use a lot. Pretty sure it's called Would You Rather, but that's no, no. Up for debate. <laughs> also, I've heard it both ways. <laughs> so today, I'm going to tell the assembled here. Carrie and Emma. Carrie and Emma. Two stories. And I'm sorry, three stories. <laughs> one of which is true, a true allegation. I'm not saying it's true that it really happened. I'm saying that it's a real story out there in the world that really supposedly happened. The other two are from just some crazy creative mind. I don't know who. <laughs> so you, the listener, are going to also guess which one is true, and we are going to carry, hopefully, technology permitting, is going to put up a poll on Facebook. Technology permitting. Is it it easy? It's very easy. easy. So she's going to put a poll up on Facebook. Yes. And you are encouraged, please, give it your shot. Which is, guess the true one, A, B, or C, okay? We'll have titles there, too. (laughs) Yes, we will. (laughs) And, you know, or, or or maybe even on Facebook, write in a comment, whatever you want to do. Same yeah. with the Instagram, whatever Talk you want. To Hit us up, man. Hit us up. Critique Still. Dean's delivery. <laughs> that, that's not necessary. <laughs> that seems. So let's start with the Big Bear Bigfoot UFO incident. Big Bear Bigfoot UFO incident. Yes, you got Mouthful. it right. Well done, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> so this one is actually very little known nationally, and you'll you'll find out why eventually. But we know about it because Carrie and I, she has a little bit of advantage here, Emma does not, were kind of very tangentially a part of this. What? Very, very. You'll you'll see. Very much. Not really, but we had some experience with it. We were frequent visitors to Big Bear. Yes, Mm. we were back back in the day. It happened at a place called Big Bear Lake in California. This is, it was in the latter part of January 1986. Big Bear is a resort town in the San Bernardino Mountains. It's, I don't know, about two hours away from coastal Los Angeles or Orange Counties in Southern California. It's a major skiing destination. It's kind of the reason people from Southern California can say, oh, you can surf in the morning and ski in the day, oh, which is Big Bear. Yeah, good luck. Yeah. Pretty much because it's the closest major ski right. resort to the coast. And good luck with that given mm-hmm. the time it takes out to get out there because the traffic is always horrific, especially on the weekend. But anyway... The incident started as just a blip in the sky. On the night of January 23rd, 1986, a couple, John O'Connor and Lori Clockgether, were out in O'Connor's truck for some, let's call it personal time. Uh, I think you know what I'm saying. They were on kind of like a long weekend ski trip with a, a group of friends, and they'd all piled into one cabin to save money, so it was kind of crowded. Mm-hmm. So O'Connor and Clockheather went out to be alone, <laughs> as, as you will. They were an item, a couple. Clockheather would tell a reporter a couple of days later that the, they had been looked up to the sky and they saw just a single light up in the night sky. It was sometime past midnight or so. Suddenly, the light appeared to split into two. 
It then went, quote, it went in weird angles super fast. We both thought there's no way nothing from here could do that. Here, mm. I guess, meaning Earth. So they both reported that the, the light was kind of a bluish, whitish color, sort of blue-white, and it was steady. It didn't twinkle like a star or, I, I guess, even a planet. It was a very steady light. And it, it, again, it split and went and did some crazy stuff that an airplane could not have done, which is a fairly typical kind of a UFO report. And the splitting, though, that's weird. The splitting's kind of weird, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is true. Now, keep in mind for a moment that this sighting was very late at night, so it did not make the next day's news in any way, shape, mm-hmm. or form. In fact, O'Connor and Clark together, they only told their friends back at the cabin the next morning. Mm-hmm. They didn't even tell them, I guess everybody was asleep by the time they got back, and they didn't tell anybody the next day at all, even their, their cohort of friends there. And a, it seems that one of those friends is who told the media, not them, told someone at the local, there's a local paper there, and that someone from that cabin, one of the friends that they told the next morning, went and took it to the to the press. Mm-hmm. Critically, the reporter at it was called the Big Bear Weekly Citizen. That reporter who was who kind of took the story, who mm-hmm. um, got the call, I guess, he swears that he was told this report before what happens next was reported. The timing's pretty important. We'll get to that why that's true later. So. At the same, the next day, the two kind of 50-ish couples, there was two couples, both in their 50s, were spending a week on a houseboat at this time on the lake. It's kind of unusual for that time of year. This is winter. It's, it gets pretty darn cold there, getting mm-hmm. the skiing, but it's not unheard of. The, the, the lake isn't really iced over. It is still Southern California. Yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> and even though it's a mile high, it's still, the, the lake stays unfrozen. And also, it was a little, it was, this is a warm, it was kind of warmer than normal at this time. It was, again, past midnight when Eldon Shepard, he got up to, quote, shake the lizard, he said that to the reporter, (laughs) over the side of the boat, and he was in midstream when he looked up and he spotted a bright light in the night sky. Again, this light was also bluish white and very steady, Hmm. and he reported this, well, you'll see. The light seemed to sort of move across the horizon very slowly, and then it, too, separated and split into two lights. One of the lights shot into the sky and disappeared within, boom, blink of an eye. Again, something a terrestrial aircraft could never do. Mm-hmm. The other light, though, stayed, and it, it's even more slowly sort of moved. It went close to the ground and slowly, and then kind of on like the opposite side of the lake, and just sort of moved along the horizon there, mm-hmm. very slowly, hovering around, and moving above the tree line, above, the, I guess, the tops of the trees very, very slowly. Shepard, finally, it, I guess it finally went below the tree line, or, or he'd lost sight of it. So he then stumbles inside, freaked out into the main cabin there, into the little room where, where he and his wife shared a room there. Again, there's two couples there. And he came in, and he saw his wife, Sheila. Not only was she awake, but she was staring out the little window in their cabin. Mm-hmm. She just looked at him, and she nodded and said, I saw it too. So according to the story, they saw it sort of independently of one another. And it wasn't like he came and said, oh, what I saw? Right. Oh, my God. And she just kind of accepted it. They both saw it independently of one another and separately what? from one another, if, if we believe their story. Mm-hmm. Quote, it was completely silent, Eldon Shepard would tell reporters later. But it would be, wouldn't it? I mean, if they can get all the way here, they can make their spaceships be quiet, he said. <laughs> sure, Eldon. <laughs> Sound logic. He apparently did not think that if they can make their spaceships be quiet, they can also make the spaceships invisible. But let's not, let's leave Eldon alone. We'll let right. that pass. But still, he's so bluish white light, separated, went fast, did strange things, and were utterly silent. It, it seems like he felt it was pretty close, not too far. Again, on the other side of the lake, though, Big Bear is, is a, it's not a natural lake, it's a reservoir from a dam, mm. but it's, it's fairly narrow across from north to south. It's yeah. very long east to west, but not super wide north to south. So, and, and this was, I think, this way, and the town, if I remember correctly, is on the south side, and um, they were kind of in the middle of the lake, and the siding was on the north side. So it could have been super far away. The two couples knew, of obviously, very, very different people 
than O'Connor and Klotka that would have known. They were like, you know, I don't know, early 20s. And the, these guys were in their 50s. So it wasn't like they knew the same people. Mm-hmm. And remember, the, those two couples have been isolated on their houseboat for before the sighting from O'Connor and Cockother, and they didn't come back in until the next morning as well. They came back into shore the next morning, having no possible way, having heard about anything. Right. It, it was it was only be later reported that day. Again, so there's no possible connection between O'Connor and Cockother or any of the friends or the reporter. And the reporter said he had been told this by that friend before he heard this story from the uh, shepherds. Mm-hmm. Okay. For five consecutive nights, starting with the O'Connor Cockother in the first night, someone saw this light, this bluish light, white in the sky, light in the sky and split. Some of those people stayed anonymous though. They didn't, they reported it, but they didn't use their name apparently. There's kind of sketchy. Again, there, there's not yeah. a lot of reports about this and again, we'll get to why, but there, there's not a whole lot of material on this. Hmm. But the multiple witnesses appeared to have seen this light for five consecutive nights. It was always seen around or after midnight. Twice more of those sightings, one of the lights went to the ground. And again, uh, uh, it seemed to sort of hover over the trees for quite some time. One witness who did come forward with his name, his name is Mark Ramstein or Romstein, I don't know. He described it as he saw it for five to 15 minutes, just sort of hovering on the other side of the, of the lake, sort of looking around. He said, quote, it was like it was looking for something. And that comment would prove very possibly to be more true than maybe he thought. Okay. Hmm. During this time, other reports started to come in of something also very strange, but a very different kind of strange. Of the Bigfoot variety, that is. On January 25th, so that's a couple days after the first UFO sighting, a guy named Fred Dennison was, as he usually did, checking his traps in the forest around his tiny cabin several miles into the mountainous backcountry north of Big Bear Lake. He captured like squirrels and possums, things like that. He's like a total backcountry dude. He lived off the land. He's eating them. He's eating them and, and getting their pelts as well. How do you get sick? Yeah, Is that legal? Know. Yeah, I don't know. Probably. Why? This is 1986. I don't. I'm not sure to be honest with you. Yeah. Didn't matter. Uh, Matters th- to the squirrels in the racket. But it's just, <laughs> yeah, I guess you're right. It was just little animals, though. This, uh, you might recall, maybe you don't, you listeners might not know, Big Bear got his name from grizzly bears, not black bears. It was mm. prime grizzly, even though it was deep in Southern California, it was actually prime grizzly country. Mm. It was a very thick population of grizzly bears there when Europeans, Americans first came there mm. and quickly wiped them out through hunting. Of course. So thank you. Absolutely. Appreciate thank that, you. assholes. The, uh, but Dennison was kind of this character. He was known in town. He was this throwback. He lived off the land and sold like pelts and things like that for necessities like toilet paper, I guess, or things like that. Wow. Otherwise, he, caught what he ate what he caught and caught what he ate. That doesn't make any sense. No. <laughs> his encounter came very suddenly. So Dennison said he was checking one of his traps and he smelled the creature before he saw it. It's this pungent, musky odor came over him when he was hunched down Apparently he was, this is not going to sound great, he, was, he had a raccoon trapped in one of his traps and he was dispatching it with a hammer. Ooh, nice. He was finishing it off with a hammer when uh, he... This, You're looking at me like you expect me to well, burst into I, I expect you to be, or something. I, <laughs> <laughs> well, I can tell you right Kind angry. of, yeah. Yeah, sort of, sort of. I, wanted to, I wasn't sure if I even mentioned that to Carrie because she's <laughs> very sensitive about this. She loves raccoons. So it was, I mean, it was a different world back in 1986. Oh, sure, yeah. Way, yeah. way Centuries back in 1986. Ago. So he smelled the smell, and he knew something was weird, so he whipped up, he turned around, and he came face-to-face with this massive, hairy creature. <gasps> he first thought it was a black bear. There's still a fair number of black bears in the area, no more, even though no more grizzlies. But then he quickly realized it's way too tall for that. Even a bear, even a black bear rearing up on his hind legs would not be that high. He said that the creature's head came to just about at or below a branch, on a tree, and this is, again, one of his traps he always had there, so he knew this, and he would come back the next day or so, I guess, and he'd measure how high that branch was off the ground. It was almost eight feet. Wow. So that the big the Bigfoot was just about eight feet tall. Mm. The Bigfoot was big. The, as they will be. Fitting. Also, its eyes were not bare eyes, for sure. Quote, it stared at me for a real long time, he told the press later. Though uh, probably in real life, it's just a, a few seconds, but yeah. to him, it felt like an eternity with a, you know, a Bigfoot staring at you. Quote, they looked at you like a person would. 
I would swear that thing had a soul. Mm. So very human Aww. type eyes. After examining Dennison for a few seconds or maybe a little longer, the thing just kind of loped off into the woods and was quickly out of sight, hmm. as, they, as they typically will. Quote, it had a kind of reddish brown hair. I don't say fur, I call it hair. Mm-hmm. It walked like a man and had a head like a man's, but kind of pointed at the top. So in other words, Dennison is really describing the perfect yes. quintessential Bigfoot. He's mm-hmm. describing Harry from Harry and the Hendersons. More or less. <laughs> Was that out by then? Man, this guy didn't have, that's the thing about I don't this think guy. So. That's, that's critical for this story is he, there's no TV. As far as people, he didn't have a radio. He was completely isolated out there. Right. He would come in once in a while and trade in town and that was it. Right. He had a few friends would come out as we'll see in a second, but he was very isolated. There's no way he could he have was, heard anything about yeah. the, the UFO stories. And I very much like, doubt it. He had ever seen a, a, a Bigfoot movie. I mean, I'm sure he heard of Bigfoot just yeah. being a human, but... He had probably not seen Harry and the Hendersons. No, Harry and the Hendersons was June 87. Oh, there you go. Ah, Okay. It was before that. Yeah. So he didn't have a TV, didn't get a newspaper, didn't know anything about the UFO sightings. I say that because it is surprising how often one type of paranormal event gives birth to another type of paranormal event, like UFOs and cryptids, or even UFOs and specifically Bigfoots have been sighted together. It seems that pretty clearly was not the case here. There's no way he could have known about those UFOs. Yeah. Yeah. Mm There were at least two other sightings later of this Bigfoot, and there were some footprints found. I'll get to that in a minute as well. At least one plaster cast was made of a supposed Bigfoot print. Hmm. The people who had those sightings, though, those later sightings after Fred Dennison, and, and the person who made the plaster cast, they remain anonymous. So it's hard to decide how to weigh their testimony, because when you're anonymous, you, you know, who knows? And, and right. that came later. So it's hard to say if it was just yeah. glomming on, right? The media was pretty... So again, apparently he... Oh, I know how. I know how. He, you'll, he has a friend in a second we'll meet, and I, he told that friend who told the media. So this story was reported at least locally. At least came to be known locally pretty quickly, the Denison sighting. Uh-huh. So it's possible those later sightings were due to that. I mean, you, you could think that. But the media covering it, both the UFO and the Bigfoot stories, treated him really as just kind of jokes. They were mm-hmm, they were yeah. told just in a couple stories in a very jokey manner. It never really got past the local press. But then something happened that it would have been much harder to ignore. It was January 27th. Dennison and his friend Nick Ronson, he was a trader in town that he knew pretty well. I must have read it somewhere. That's the conduit it got to the local press through Nick Ronson. They were at Dennison's cabin late at night, just shooting the shit, and Suddenly, something pounded violently on the door. Uh oh. They jumped up, froze. Then they saw an immense shadow cross by one of the curtained windows, <gasps> you know, thin curtains. They see this huge shadow just walk by oh the window. And then they both caught scent of this powerful odor. And Dennison knew right away what was outside his, his little cabin. Yeah. Just wanted, wanted to wanted, visit. Literally just wanted to hang out. Yeah. <laughs> wanted to come over share that raccoon. I guess. They were both really freaked out, so Dennison got his rifle. And I guess just, just trying to scare it, you know, you shoot into the air. Well, in the air, was he was inside his cabin, so he shot right through his roof. That's an idiotic move. Yeah. He, he wanted to scare it away. Mm-hmm. And he would later show reporters the hole through his roof and say, quote, nowhere in hell I'd shoot through my own damn roof if I wasn't scared of something. <laughs> So he was trying okay. to convince him, you know, hey, yeah. don't call me a liar. I, I, I wouldn't do this. Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't do that. Some people would wonder if maybe they were just shit-faced drunk. Yeah. And that was why he shot through his own roof. But those people who knew Dennison said he was a complete teetotaler, never touched booze, probably couldn't even afford it. And Ronson, the friend who was with him that night, said they had neither one of them had touched a drink, had anything hmm. to drink that night They're probably night delirious from all the raccoon they were eating. <laughs> Delicious raccoon. Don't. Yeah, and they might have had some possum stew in there too. Good Maybe God. a little bit of squirrel. Oh, mm. Mm. The creature apparently fled though, so it worked. Take a couple shots in your roof, and the thing outside yeah. is going to take off. Hmm. Emboldened by having a weapon in his hand and, and the creature fleeing, apparently afraid of that weapon, the men gave chase. They took oh. off after it into the forest. Pretty ballsy. Yeah, I would very say. ballsy. They said they could follow the creature more by smell than sight because it's night. It's dark. I mean, it's moonlight and starlight, but they could smell it and they, could, they knew where it was going. They, they raced off into the forest and they finally get, not that far away, they get to this clearing. It's kind of a moonlit clearing so they can see things pretty well. 
but they could see things even better because of the light. So in the middle of this clearing, the Bigfoot was just standing there now, and it was looking mm. up. They followed its eyes and looked up along with it, and they saw a big bluish white oh, light in the sky. Interesting. Ron, someone later said it was big and round like the moon. It was not the moon, though, because they estimated it was maybe 100 feet or so off the ground. Quote, not too far above the trees, Ronson said. So it's, you know, people, because people say, oh, people say, oh, it's the Venus or things like that, or maybe mm-hmm. it's the moon. This was not, this yeah. was bluish white and it was way too low and it was huge and it was hovering above the Bigfoot in the middle of this clearing. There was a sudden flash of the light and they just, they reared back, they covered their eyes. When they regained their senses and their vision, both men saw that the clearing was empty. The Bigfoot was gone. The UFO hovered there for another couple of seconds, and then it was gone later. But it didn't just shoot into space. They said it almost like sort of dematerialized, mm. like it phased out of our, you know, whatever plane of existence. What I don't know how yeah. you say it, but it disappeared along with the Bigfoot there, and mm-hmm. not to ever be seen again. So, and that was the end of both the UFOs <gasps> and the Bigfoot experiences. So, what might explain this? First, let's talk about the UFOs for a sec. March and George Air Force bases were not that far away, and they're still operating. It's still the Cold War. And both those Air Force bases have done secret missions. In fact, one of them, I think it's March Air Force Base, included a lot of testing and transporting of the space shuttle. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and it's, it's not even that far. This is the, you know, sort of eastern Southern California, so mm-hmm. it's not super far from Area 51. It's certainly within an experimental plane ride away from Area 51 in Nevada. Mm-hmm. So some people think it was something, something secret, right. something Military. stealth maybe, yeah. something like that, that they saw this bluish white light and just mistook it. A uh, professor at UC Riverside named Malcolm Mizell, I don't know what kind of professor he was, he claimed it was a classic case of mass hysteria. He must have been mm-hmm. a psychologist. His quote, after the first supposed sighting, potential witnesses throughout the area began to look to the skies to see what the first witnesses had seen. Misobservations of aerial or astronomical phenomena, and I th- he means stars and or planes or, or planets or things like that. And confirmation bias then took over. People saw what they wanted and expected to see. So yeah. at, at least that could explain the later ones, again, most of which were anonymous or some of which were anonymous from the UFOs after. But, it, but there's that disconnect between the first two for sure didn't contaminate each other. Mm-hmm. The Bigfoot was only seen by two people that were identified, Ronson and Dennison, the other... I guess I, I'm not even sure how many the person the person or persons who got the uh, footprint and mm-hmm. reported it remained anonymous. So two people that we know of that can identify by names was all that saw the Bigfoot, and of course plaster cast can be faked. They have been many yeah. many times throughout yeah. history. So it's it's no obvious hoax, and mistaken identity. It seems it's like it wasn't a bear. You know, is clearly he he didn't see a bear there. But still, at the end of the day, it's just two people who said they saw that and they could be just having us on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mistaken lights and mass hysteria, though, can only go so far. The witnesses, again, appear to have been highly independent with no contact. So the mass hysteria argument is really, I think, very weak. Yeah. And even though there were a few witnesses, uh, there was more than one witness who saw the lights and the Bigfoot. So you have, you have multiple people, people at the same time. Remember, the husband and wife saw the lights. The other couple saw the lights, and the husband and wife saw it separately. Right. And, you know, you, it, so I, I guess two people can go in on a hoax, but it's less likely than one person yeah. joking with us or messing with us. So I don't know. Plus, there was a hair sample from the supposed Bigfoot, not just the cast. That same person, that the anonymous procurer of the cast, also retrieved a hair sample. Mm. The sample was sent to a chemist at Cal State University San Bernardino for analysis. The sample was soon, quote unquote, lost. Oh. So it cannot be tested again. But the initial testing that the professor did, even though it was incomplete, he still, his name is Professor Henry Ramirez. He would publicly say later that early testing did, had not identified the hair sample as coming from anything they did test against it. And he said that included a bear, dog, cat, raccoon, and a possum. Mm. Ramirez and I guess his colleagues were in the process of securing some primate hair samples mm. 
when from other universities mm-hmm. when the sample went missing. So they never were able to, d- to test it against human or primate hair samples. That's usually the idea because obviously yeah. Bigfoot would be some kind of primate. So, but they, they tested against what they had at hand and it didn't match any of those things, which were com- the common animals that would be out in that right. forest. And Carrie and I have a very special connection to this event. Do you? Sort of. Very, very, I said, very, very minor. <laughs> Remember that couple that snuck off to enjoy some alone time because the cabin was too crowded? Yeah. I do. Yes, you do. <laughs> Can I guess? Yes. Is it Tim and someone? No, no. <laughs> no it's, he it's, said the name. It's John O'Connor and Lloyd Clark. Oh, I forgot. I know. They <laughs> were our friends. Really? We were part of that crowded cabin what? group of people. Seriously? Yeah. They can't, I mean, they... Nothing really happened that night. They came back and everybody was in bed, like I said. But the next morning, they pretty matter-of-factly told all of us, it was like eight or ten people in that cabin, uh, that what had happened. And they were very sober about it, very matter-of-fact about it. Uh John, in fairness, John O'Connor was a bit of a joker. Mm Mm-hmm. He, a bit. <laughs> a bit. He was a, kind of a crazy dude. He, I, I drove with him once back from Big from Mammoth once, and he would turn the lights off and drive on the wrong side of the... Uh, Ooh, and yeah, he I almost, would say, I'm going to walk. You can let me out. He also, he also once... My friend Tim and I were driving him back to his car in the parking lot. We all knew each other from Knott's Berry Farm, an amusement park in Southern California. Mm-hmm. The and parking lot, which was dirt and gravel. It was dirt and gravel <laughs> parking lot. It's an old parking lot. It was like the extra parking lot. It was dirt right. and gravel. It's, I'm sure it's built over now. And... He goes, that's my car, that's my car, down the aisle. And, and Tim goes, okay, I'll, we'll, I'll turn around and come back. But he, he, suddenly, he was in the back seat. The, the back car door opened. And, and we, he just tucked and, we and rolled. He tucked and rolled. <laughs> oh, my God. And I, I swear to God, I looked in the rearview mirror on, the, on my right side, and I see a boom, 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 you know, this guy <laughs> bouncing up and down. And we got back to him. He was pretty bloody, actually. Yeah. He was, it was like 15 miles an hour. It was very slow, but he was well, messed gravel, up. gravel, yeah. Yeah, it was gravel and dirt. He was not... I mean, Jesus he was, Christ. He had some, some gravel and dirt in his skin. So he was a nut, but he was very serious and sober about this story. He did not seem to be trying to bullshit people. And Lori wasn't the type. Not to, at all. Lori was yeah. very not jokey. Yeah. What, were you like, oh, yeah, sure? Um, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I, I I don't know what you know. You don't remember your reaction? No. I, well, I, I remember being kind of like, oh, really? Sure. Because all they saw was a light in the sky and it split. Right. So maybe, maybe not. Maybe you're confused. Maybe you're drunk. I don't know. Yeah. Or but yeah, sure you saw High. that, but it's something. Yeah, it's I something. Mean, I just planes, don't know what it is. Helicopters. Yeah, I don't it, know. it did. The way you describe it, it did some weird shit, but maybe you can still mistake an identity yeah. there. And, um, of course, then again, the, the next couple of days later, you hear about this houseboat thing. Yeah. And that mm-hmm. was head-scratching, I'll, I'll admit. Huh. Um, we did not see anything. We went out. We went out the next, it was Saturday, I think. Everybody was out there past midnight, look, all of us, looking, looking at the skies. I'm sure we were the only ones because it hit the news by then, the local news. It made the rounds, and we never saw anything. That is a fantastic twist to the story. Yeah. <laughs> I loved yeah. that. Now, one more twist. You might ask why you've never heard of the story, why it's not kind of a famous... Again, it was just very local, so I can see there's lots of UFO stories like this, but a UFO with a Bigfoot? That's a pretty cool story. You guys are just bre- like, you're breaking the law. No, you, you know why? You signed why? NDAs, and you're like breaking the law right now. <laughs> did you know, did you get, catch sight of the date? The la- it, it culminated on January 27th, 1986. Does anyone know what happened on January 28th, 1986, early that morning? Princess Diana died. Mm, yeah, worse. About a decade <laughs> Much too worse. Early. And, and way Sorry, too early. Candle the Wind was already a song, but it was about Marilyn Monroe still. I don't know. That was the day of the Challenger space oh, shuttle disaster. That yeah. makes sense. And the Kinda world's every- attention was not going to pay yeah. by a little UFO in yeah. Big Bear, Everything California. Everything else would get buried. Yeah. yeah. It got completely buried. It really, it, it, it stopped there. There was no chance for it to kind of like have people come there and investigate it and look into it. No one cared. Right. So it died a yeah. quick death. Interesting. Yes. Wow, that's cool. That is number one. Okay. Number two. We'll call this the peanut butter mayonnaise craze. Ew. Oh, that sounds good. Peanut butter uh, mayonnaise? Y- y- yeah. You're an evil okay, person. Okay, I enjoy mayonnaise <laughs> and I enjoy peanut butter, but I draw the line. Well, you're white, so you have to. Yeah. It was in October of 1969. At the American Academy of Pediatrics annual meeting held in Chicago that year, two government drug experts attended this pediatric meeting that year. Ernest Carabillo Jr., who's a lawyer and a pharmacist who worked for the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. He was a Fed. With him was a guy named Frank Gulich, who worked for the city of Chicago's Narcotics Bureau. They had an agenda for being there, talking to a bunch of these baby doctors, right? 
or young people doctors. <laughs> well, you, that's, that's important because they were there to warn these pediatricians that there was a serious youth drug craze that was running rampant or in America and was going to do some real damage if they didn't nip it in the bud. What was the craze? What year was this? 1969. 69. Oh, then I have no idea. It wasn't weed. It wasn't <laughs> cocaine. It wasn't even heroin or LSD. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Oh, not LSD. That would have been my guess. Carabio and Gulick wanted to warn them about this terrifying trend that was going to leave a trail of death in its wake. We've all heard of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Delicious. How about peanut butter and banana? I think we've heard that. Mm -hmm. Elvis Presley famously loved peanut butter and banana sandwiches. I hate Elvis, but those are good, yeah. But what about peanut butter and mayonnaise? What about peanut butter and honey? Okay, we'll throw that in there too. I didn't know this was a cooking show, but okay. (laughs) Peanut butter and syrup. Peanut, no, okay, let's, you know, let's lay off the other peanut butter sandwiches. We're going to talk about peanut butter mayonnaise okay. here from now on, okay? PB&M. Not as a sandwich, though, but as an intravenous drug. What? What? Mm-hmm. Peanut butter and mayonnaise injected into your veins. That's right. How could you possibly survive that? Good question. In the late 1960s, dumb kids desperate for a newer, a new, cheaper, and maybe legal high were shooting a concoction of peanut butter mayonnaise into their veins. You know, this does not sound very... Unrealistic. Uh. This terrifying trend was brought to widespread attention of Americans by this Caribbean and Gulich uh, at this pediatrician's event, and the media then just ate it up. There were several, a lot of stories throughout all over the country about this whole PB and M craze. <laughs> the two narcotics officials claimed the fat had caught on recently, fueled by an quote underground recipe book that was being passed around America's drug curious youth for a dollar a piece. A dollar a copy. I don't know if it was mimeographed back in those days or what, but it was dittos. Dittos, yeah. (laughs) The book provided handy shortcuts for a variety of food based freakouts, or quote, culinary escapes from reality, the book said. A PB&M, peanut butter and mayonnaise, was one of those that would send the user on a quote, on a little trip. So the problem was, these drug agents warned, that shooting that scrumptiousness directly into your <laughs> veins was the only shortcut it was, was to death. Yeah. yeah. It was very dangerous. Yeah. Already they said there have been, quote, several documented cases of death due to PB&M. Kids are injection. stupid, so I honestly don't put them past that. I don't even know how it would work. Yeah, I don't know. You melt you it mean on inject- a Well, yeah, yeah. You, yeah, you could, you could, you could, it could do physically it. physically do it, sure. Something that and thick? They probably would do something. Yeah, it. probably melt it. Yeah, yeah. eat it. I don't know. Do something. Oh, yeah. yeah. I guess if you heated it up. Yeah. Remember, yeah. peanut butter gets pretty damn watery. Yes, it does. Just the oil on top. A flurry of media. <laughs> you can get it thinking. <laughs> a flurry of media reports brought out more experts on uh-huh. this topic, whether they are self-styled or otherwise, and eager to join the warning of America against this new dangerous thing. One was named Albert Cook. He was the director of narcotics for Ohio's attorney general. He was quoted in a state school magazine later that year that he personally knew of a young man who had died after injecting peanut butter by itself. Early the next year, 1970 now, a high-ranking official at the Missouri Highway Patrol warned state lawmakers that, quote, some Missouri youngsters have become severely ill from shooting peanut butter, but none have died yet. In August of 1970, the associate dean of Ohio State University's College of Pharmacy he said five young Ohioans had already died from PB and Mayo. I'm sure he shook his head, no doubt, and he, ruefully he said, quote, how unhappy they must be to do such a ridiculous things. Very sad. I don't yeah. think they're unhappy. I just think they're, they're bored. They're bored. Yeah. And I can totally buy somewhere someone saying, there's a chemical in peanut butter that if you mix it with mayonnaise, it yeah. gets you high, and kids <laughs> believing that. Yeah. Like, yeah. I fully buy that. Well, tales of shooting PB&M made it into the Senate committee report. There was a Senate committee report in 1969, I believe. In October 1969, it came out about drugs. They, it included, it's in the record, it included tales about this PB&M uh, craze. And there was even a reference to it in Richard Nixon's official presidential papers. Oh. So I'm going to go, go find that. It's in it's really close to where your mom lives. I've been there. Uh, yes, I, I, point of pride that I've never been there. Oh well, I had I, I was doing research. I know. Why is that a point of pride? No one's really a big fan of Nixon. Uh, yeah. Well, oh, <laughs> it's in your Belinda. <laughs> so this. Is I, a, I probably won't go to Trump's library either. Mm, you know, Definitely not sure won't. there's going to be one. 
He's going to collect somewhere. a lot of money to build one, and then eh, it just won't get yeah. built. It'll be, it'll say like Donald Trump Library, and then you walk in, and it's like an arcade. <laughs> like it's not a library. No, everything's going to be gold and yeah. fake and yeah. fake. And gold. the only Hideous books are like conservative rhetoric. No, it'll be books by and about him. Mm-hmm. That's it. Which is conservative or, rhetoric. Uh, Ghost written by someone else, but so mostly by him. So this was at a time when America's youth was constantly searching for new vistas of drug use, particularly if the substance was cheap and legal. The list of supposed altered states inducing substances grew throughout the era. So it included inhaling gasoline or glue. That makes yeah. yes. Of course the latter is still around, still popular in places where a lot of the people don't have all of their toes. Correct. But it grew to include smoking periwinkle leaves. <laughs> okay. that, that's a flower, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Munching on morning glory seeds. Spraying underarm deodorant on cigarettes and then lighting up. Oh, Smoking the cigarette with, my God. with underarm deodorant sprayed on it was supposedly to get you high. Oh, that sounds dangerous. That it sounds does. super dangerous. Here's, here's worse. Spraying black flag roach killer directly <gasps> into your nose, right into your nostrils. Oh, well, wow. Gary yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is blown away. Flabbergasted. <laughs> Yeah, that yeah, means that's suppose they got you high. I'm not. Please, well, by the way, do don't, don't do damage any of these. Well, things. I mean, any a lot of chemical drugs. That yeah, Ooh. they're also inhaling furniture polish as well. That's called lemon fresh pledge, baby. <laughs> this room is a great hot. No, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> but yeah, that was kids did that too. Huh? That is now kids just do drugs. Yeah, <laughs> just regular good old drugs. They just do regular. They just find someone who will sell them drugs. <laughs> Um, I'm going to have to, well, I'll, I'll, I'll open up here in a second about this, but uh, <laughs> one of the biggest ones though was smoking banana peels. What? This took off in 1967 Why? and was even sold legally in newspaper advertisements. I've seen an advertisement in a paper. It, said, it was called Mellow Yellow. Oh, wow. I've heard you talk about that. Commercial. And it was commercial versions of this. Um, and it involved scraping the inside of banana peels, drying out this substance and then smoking it. It turned out to be a hoax. Started as a joke by this magazine in New York that was satirizing kind of like uh, drug fears, drug drug paranoia. You know, like oh, these squares are so worried about drugs. Hey, yeah. kids are smoking banana peels. You can get really high, and it was just their sat- satire. Well, to their chagrin, kids started smoking banana peels. Kids, <laughs> if you make a joke, kids will do it. Yeah, Oops, like eating Tide Pods yeah. was just purely a joke yeah. until twelve-year-olds yeah. decided to do it. Yeah, this is like they didn't kill anyone. Yeah. Uh, but it's still, kids started doing it. Ironically, this banana hoax that turned into a real thing, that was one of the things that sort of animated those two drug agents at that pediatrician's conclave in Chicago to make their heartfelt warning because they this could happen. Even yeah. if it's a stupid little joke, yeah. mm-hmm. people might do it. So even if peanut butter mayonnaise isn't going to get you high, kids are stupid enough to do it, so we needed to stop this right now. Somebody's going to try it, and, and bad things are going to happen. But yes, would, would shooting... PB and M even get you high if no. you could if you did shoot it up into your veins. Not surprisingly, there was no ready to go research <laughs> when the fad <laughs> seemingly suddenly hit the streets in the late 1960s. But that didn't stop some medical types from taking stabs at the issue. They took a guess. So some people thought maybe the oil in the peanut butter broke down in the veins, and that the little flat the little fat globules globules would cause hallucinations somehow. I don't know mm-hmm. how what the mechanism is for that, but that was a theory huh. from some medical types. I guess because why not? A November 1969 article in the Chicago Tribune theorized that the gooey substances in, I guess, the peanut butter game, or maybe the mayo too, they would get into the bloodstream and they would restrict blood circulation, and that would cause like highs in the in the kind of lightheaded, dizzy kind of a high. Yeah, thing. and that would okay. sure be worth injecting peanut oh, butter yeah. and mayonnaise. All you, know, you that, need to do. Is not eat all day and then stand up really fast. There you go. Or just be anemic. Yeah. Or if, shoot peanut butter. If you're just anemic and you have low iron, you can stand up really quick and get a cool head rush. Wow. That sounds like experience. Okay. That's I'm not anemic. Okay. I just know anemic people. To be fair, most experts who weighed in on the issue said it was all a bunch of nonsense. There's no way it could get you high. That the only thing injecting PB&J would do would likely kill you through some yeah, kind of coronary yeah. event. Of course. You can't yeah. put that shit in your fucking bloodstream. No. no. Bad idea. So don't do it again. Don't do it or any of those other things I mentioned. Don't. The fad was over by the, by late 1970. We pretty much had come and gone. It, and it really has never resurfaced since. Well, it became well, that's very good. forgotten. At first, the stories 
First, the story has only started to cite peanut butter, as you might have noticed. The, the mayonnaise mm-hmm. kind of got left behind later in this little arc of story telling. But then even that went away and it was forgotten until now. I'm bringing to the attention of a whole yeah. <laughs> of a new world and hopefully people won't do it because it won't get you high and it might kill you. Please don't do it. Just do drugs. Like if you really want to be high, just do <laughs> regular good. drugs. That's Smoke good. some weed. That's good. Bizarro Nancy Reagan. I mean, Or if you could, I've seen it. On TikTok and other social media platforms, there are natural herbs and shit you can smoke in lieu of things yeah. like marijuana that can get you some sort of high. It's just not as dangerous as weed, even though weed's not dangerous. And you're advocating that. I'm not advocating for it. I'm just so saying whatever. there's options out there. <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure you know all your options. That are better Would than you peanut say, butter. Instead of saying to you, say the same thing to young, I don't know, murderers, hey, hey, you don't have to use a gun. You have other options. You, no, you just can go to therapy. Okay. You don't have to kill anyone. You can go to therapy. Or, you know, run around the block. You get the runner's high. Yeah. Yeah. God. It's a mom. Run answer. up. You know, just run up. It's healthy. Get good exercise. And mountain. you can get a runner's high. Run exactly. up a mountain. You know, around the block's probably not going to get you a runner's high. Called oh, oh I have a good one. Ten times. Ten I times. have a good one. Ten, There's something ten. called pre-workout, mm-hmm. which is a supplement. It's usually in a powder form that you put in some water mm-hmm. and you drink that. That shit makes you very tingly mm-hmm. and like energized. It's probably like, it's probably like caffeine of yeah. five cups of coffee. Well, well, I don't know. I don't know what's Speed. in it. Probably. It's just ca- it's Seriously. Just, <laughs> it just makes you feel like motivated, energized. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Instead of meth. The final question here is, is was this great PB&M craze just as much of a hoax as a banana peel event? So a group called Arrowid, they, like, I guess they foster information on psychedelics. I don't, I, they're almost like advocates huh. for it, sort of. They claim that it was just, this was the case. It was just a total hoax. It never really happened. No one ever really did it. They could not find any record of any harm coming to anyone ever from injecting PB&M, and they just chalked it up to typical American drug hysteria. And they had the germ of the hysteria. Peanut, peanut butter, they said, had sometimes been used in, as a slang term for brown methamphetamine. So it was called oh. peanut butter back in the in the sixties, I guess. Mayonnaise had been slang for either heroin or cocaine, because mm, so they're it was white. white. Yeah. Huh. So they thought they theorized that some zealous drug officials had heard these terms <laughs> and took them very literally and thought, okay, you know, then or, and then yeah, uh, that hilar- would not surprise me. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't surprise me either. Hilarious hysteria okay, ensued. Okay, they told me to get peanut butter and mayonnaise <laughs> from you. I don't, I'm not quite sure what they meant. It's like an undercover agent. <laughs> hey guys, let's rap. <laughs> I, I got the peanut butter and the mayonnaise here, and it's actual peanut butter Anybody and mayonnaise. Anybody know you know. where to get that PB&M? Oing, mm, oing. We're going to get high on this, right? <laughs> let's do it, guys. <laughs> ignore, ignore my old man's haircut and lack of any facial hair. Hey. I am one of you. Hey, do you know where to get drugs at? <laughs> <laughs> let's get drugs and partake of them. <laughs> so... Is that really, though, how it went down? Maybe not. The Museum of Hoaxes looked into this. I want to go there. Yeah, I do, too. It's on it's a website. Fun. I don't know if it's a real place. Or <laughs> what? It's, this story uh, is... But the story I'm telling you, by the way, is largely taken from a really good article on the website of the Museum of Hoaxes, by the way. They found that, indeed, there were no media reports of PB&M-related deaths or even just peanut butter alone deaths prior to this the October 1969 pediatrician's conclave, Right. But they did poke a hole in the theory that the Fed started with that October 1969 event. They found that in March of 1969, uh, at a Wisconsin high school, a narcotics agent had given a talk to students about drugs. Don't do drugs, right? One of the students, according to a, a press report of it later on, had asked him, hey, can you get high by injecting peanut butter and mayonnaise? Oh. And the narcotics agent said, I have no idea, but don't do that. Right. And this is yeah. in March, of 19, so it's already out there among Kids. Kids, yeah. The head of the Arizona Ranch School in Tucson stated in an article in their in-house publication that his inmates had would do anything to get high, and drug use was a problem even on his ranch. And this was in uh, also the spring of 1969, months before October. Quote, they sniff glue, and they sniff gasoline, and they take cough syrup. Some of, of them even inject peanut butter. The fat globules can make them high. They'll do anything, unquote. So it was out there there as well in, in Arizona. So that's pretty widespread. Finally, there was a June 1969 article in the Washington Post that quoted the head of New York's Council on Drug Addiction, 
warning about bizarre concoctions being used by kids to get high. He said, quote, kids have injected peanut butter mayonnaise into their veins. That's, that, this can kill them, end quote. So all over the country, including from kids directly, yeah. the PB&M yeah. idea was clearly already in the air before the pediatrician's event, and, that, and those two agents talked about it. So, and again, it was, it was from young people in at least, at least one instance. So maybe the officials exaggerated it, and maybe some of the stories of the dire consequences were not true, but the idea seems to be independent of that and, and precede that event. So uh, did some kids inject PB&M? I mean, it seems possible, or maybe just peanut butter, but regardless, kids will do immensely stupid things to get high when they can't afford the good stuff. I mean, who hasn't smoked dried banana peels in a homemade pipe fashioned from a toilet paper roll with a tinfoil with little holes cut into it? I mean, who hasn't done that? We've all done that. <laughs> I've never done that. Oh, we've, I think we've all done Let's just agree we've all done that. Uh, I've smoked weed out of a lemon. Okay. I have a feeling one third of the people at this table <laughs> might have done something like that. I have like a feeling that. you may uh, have done that. So I can vouch for it that uh, many years after this, it was still a thing. People were still really? talking about what? getting high on, pe- on banana pe- peel. Ban- yeah, yeah. like the 80s, 70s, yeah. 80s? Se- late 70s, early 80s, yeah. Did it work? No. <laughs> I mean, I, theoretically. I've Should we try it out? No. Again? It did not work. No. But, uh, <laughs> Damn. But, they, okay, so there's the, the, the story's in the air. The authorities hear about it, and they shit their pants, and they blow, blow it out of proportion. I think that's probably something like that. It's typical of the man and his short attention span. So, yeah. by the way, as an aside, as a quick end of this story, as, uh, there's a website called Garden and Gun. Whoa. A scary. That sounds terrible. It tells us that peanut butter mayonnaise sandwiches were actually a southern delicacy for decades. I just gagged a little bit thinking yeah, about it's it. This schoolston. Mm-mm. I don't know. Mayonnaise is, is savory and peanut butter oof. is sweet. Peanut butter is not sweet? It's not. It goes with sweet. It's sweeter it's, than it's savory. In the, it's in the sweet it's family. It's not sweet at all. What it's goes not with sweet? What? Okay, it's listen, not sweet or savory, listen, is listen, it? Listen. I guess I don't what know. What goes with peanut butter? What? Inherently, jelly sweet. Yeah, peanut butter is savory. You're wrong. No, I'm not. We're just because it now. goes with sweet things what doesn't do, make What it do sweet? we always no, naturally pair peanut butter up with? Jelly, jelly and which is sweet. chocolate. Yeah, which are both yes. sweet. Exactly. Savory and sweet. So naturally, no. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So then, mm-mm. is She's is angry. white bread sweet because you put you toast it and put jam on it? Yeah. See, white bread is, is a sunny neutral sweet food. because he was with peanut share. butter is not a neutral food. Peanut butter always tends to go towards sweet things. We're moving on. <laughs> I still, I ask you, what's the, what's the real crime here? Shooting PB&M into your veins or eating PB&M sandwiches, sandwiches. which is disgusting. I, so, come on. At least you have an We're going to catch mom eating them. Probably. Soon, probably. I, I might I have believe, to try I, it. No, you're not. I'm going to just, no. If it's crunchy peanut butter, I'll bite. I'll uh, take a bite. I won't. But that's it. <sighs> and if it's Miracle Whip and it's on Wonder Bread. Ugh, Our I'm third kidding. and last story, Granny in the Window. Granny uh, in the Window. Zentha Humphreys, Z-E-N-T-H-E, great name. Zentha? Zentha. That's pretty. Mm-hmm. She was born on April 4th, 1840, near oh. Shelbyville, Kentucky. Yes, coincidentally, Carrie's birthday. It's a different year, though. Very different year, <laughs> yeah. Just a Much. few years before you were born. <laughs> oh, actually, a few years after. Shot fired. Oh <laughs> batter shot fired. Batter. Yeah, hey. I'm a miracle if that's Yeah, true. you look fantastic. Yes, yeah. You look good for 170. Yeah, <laughs> so it's about Shelbyville is about 30 miles outside of Louisville. It's still pretty darn wild country in those days. Zentha. Pretty darn wild. Pretty ding dang wild. Would you prefer <laughs> strong language? <laughs> well, I'm trying to clean up my act. <laughs> So she married her childhood sweetheart, Matthew Gibbard. I thought you were going to say she married her child. <laughs> no, she did not. She had no child, childs yet. He was the scion of a prosperous local farm family, the Gibbards. They were wed, Zentha and Matthew were wed on June 19th, 1861. This was the day before Matthew left to fight in the Civil, Civil War. War. Mm. Kentucky was a border state, as you might recall, so it was kind of torn by both secession and loyalist to the Union. It more or less remained neutral, by the way, throughout the entire Civil War. So did Tennessee, again, more or less. But well, many which Ken- side did he fight on? He's, many Kentuckians did join up, and they volunteered for one side or the other. Matthew fought on the... Union side. Confederate oh, side. Oh, fuck Sorry him. about that. I hate him. On various leaves, I guess, you know, every once in a while you'd have a leave, and you'd go home throughout the course of the war... During these leaves, Matthew fathered three children with Zentha. 
Each time he would leave his wife on his family farm, which is called Coffeeville, with his mother and siblings, younger siblings, and he'd go back and fight. When the war ended, Matthew came home, naturally. Hmm. Though the family was officially kind of neutral, everyone knew Matthew's sympathies were with the Confederacy and he had fought for the Confederate Army, right? And now things are different. There's a lot of, you know, the, the Union side won. There's some hard feelings, you know, because again, the state mm-hmm. was really split. Yeah. So one night in July, a group of pro-Union rowdies came looking for Matthew. Some said it was more personal and political that there was one, like a personal enemy had, you know, whipped up anger of this group of drunken hooligans to go to his house and confront Matthew. But regardless, there was harsh words and threats led to a brief exchange of gunfire. And one of the group that had come to seek Matthew was injured in the arm. Matthew was quickly disarmed and essentially, you know, taken custody of, I guess, Tossing a rope from the Gibbard's own barn over the branch of the huge coffee tree that stood in front of the house. The group, Are you saying coffee tree? Yes, yeah, a coffee tree. It's a type of... It's, it's, um, Does it grow coffee? Its bark was used to make a substitute for coffee. Ah, so that's why it's called a coffee so yes, tree. It was okay. a big, was right. you know, leafy tree with some pretty sturdy branches. Branches. So they went and got a, a rope from his own barn. They oh, put oh. it over and they tightened his <gasps> neck, Matthew's neck, no. in that rope. His parents, by the way, and his wife, Xantha, were being held at gunpoint inside the house. In fact, one of the more sadistic thugs forced Xantha up to the second floor room that she and Matthew shared. Mm-hmm. There, he forced her to stare outside uh, through the oh, window no. toward the tree as they strung up Matthew from one of the branches of that Kentucky coffee tree that had shaded the Gibbard house and gave, and gave the estate its name. They, you can guess the end of that. They hung him they and died. killed him, and she was forced to, to watch the entire thing. No. For decades, Xanthe lived in Coffeeville with the family. I mean, she lived there the rest of her life. She sort of just faded into herself, and eventually she became a recluse, spending almost all her time up in a room, you know, I interacting rare, more, more and more rarely with the rest of the family. For hours on end, though, Xanthe would just sit in a rocking chair by that window in the second floor bedroom. She would idly maybe knit or crochet, but otherwise she just gazed out onto the coffee tree, probably reliving that horrific day her husband was murdered. Wow. Huh. Over the years, Xantha produced shawls and scarves and, and socks, whatever, for the children and then eventually her grandchildren. Every once in a while, she would tell the family that the latest scarf or whatever that she produced was Hunter Green, and that was, it was Matthew's favorite color. Mm. And she would say, this is for Matthew because he's got to stay warm out there in the winter fighting a war that he was never going to return oh. from. So she may have been a little bit... That's sad. Yeah. yeah. It is. Granny Z, as she came to be called... That's dope. ...died in 1912. I want to be called Granny Z, even Granny though Z? my name is not with Z. <laughs> she has a reason to be called Granny Z. <laughs> she was... So she died in 1912. She was survived by three children... Of course, she never had any more children, (laughs) and she almost never left her room, but she had 11 grandchildren as well. During life, she had come to be almost like this spectral presence to the grandkids who barely knew her, really. I mean, they could see her, and they they knew who she was and everything, but she didn't interact with them much. They would just see her up in the window, knitting and crocheting and staring blankly at the tree all day long. In 1917, a great-grandchild, Jed Gibbard, he went off to fight a new great war, World War I. Yep. Mm. Just as he left in an old Model T driven by his cousin, he turned back to the house and looked up and looked up to the window and he waved toward the house. Mm-hmm. So as they pulled away, the cousin says, Who are you waving to? And Jen said, I was waving to Granny Z, who is his great grandmother. Yeah. The cousin looked at him and said, Granny Z, what are you talking about? She's been dead for years. <laughs> Right then, Jed just seemed to kind of realize that, mm-hmm. remember that, and nod, looking baffled, and said, I know. Right. So it was like, you know, even he was confused. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> you're oh, yeah. right. She is dead. She's been dead for five years. A few months later, Jed was killed at the Battle of Cambrai. That was the first major action the U.S. took part of in World War I. So that made him one of the first Americans to die in the war. Aww. It was in late R. 1917. R. 
Before long, Granny Z was being seen in her window repeatedly. Most sightings were naturally from members of the extended Gibbard family. These sightings became so regular that they were soon kind of part of family lore and almost expected by any family members who either lived there, of course, or stayed there for any kind of period at all at the Coffeeville estate. You almost sort of, if you didn't see Granny Z, uh, Granny Z you felt left out. Not all the witnesses to the ghost of Granny Z, though, were from within the family. And that's important for the validity of the story because, you know, if it's just a family story, yeah. I mean, Betsy Ross did not, for instance, invent and sew the first American flag. That's complete bullshit made up by the Ross family. And it's just with, yeah. from within the family. In this case, there is some non-family validation of this. So, And one of these stories is particularly noteworthy. By the Depression era, the ghostly figure in the window of the Gibbard farmhouse was kind of locally semi-famous. But James L. Hemphill, he was a traveling salesman. He was not, he had never been to the area. He didn't sell brushes or dictionaries, though. He sold above-ground swimming pools. Ooh. Seems weird, huh? In the 19th, I didn't even know those existed. Yeah. yeah. But they did. These were kind of, these were getting more and more popular at the time. And they would be for decades to come because they were so much cheaper and than, easier, yeah, yeah, yeah. Than regular pools yeah. and, and new materials had made them much more durable recently. So they were becoming popular, more popular this time. Hemphill, he even had the traveling salesman's, you know, briefcase or case or something he'd pick around. He'd bring with him, but this case had a scale model of mm. one of the pools that he oh. sold. He'd just pop it open and show this beautiful blue pool and say, hey, "You could swim in that right now." It'd be much bigger, but. You should buy this from me because I'm broke. <laughs> His territory included much of the Southeast, and he had only been at it for a few months. He had been, by the way, a successful lawyer before the Depression. That wow. was pretty common. So now he's selling pools door to door. In the summer of 1934, he was driving east from Louisville and kind of trying to hit the towns along the way. So when Hemphill passed through Shelbyville, he spotted this kind of prosperous-looking uh, big old farmhouse at Coffeeville, and he thought, I'll try my luck with that. They looked like they could afford it. Mm -hmm. He was greeted, of course, with sweet tea and hospitality, because this was the South, but the Gibbard farm wasn't quite as successful as it had been. Again, this is the Depression now. And, of course, they also had no need, and they really couldn't afford an above-ground pool. So he was having no luck in his pitch. It, this was the summer, right? So it was very warm even at night. This is almost nighttime, right? It's late, late afternoon. He'd been giving his pitch out at a wooden table under, in the shade of that famous coffee tree, to Althea Gibbard, who was the current lady of the house, right? Though it was nearing dusk by this time, when he finished his, his spiel, so Althea said, would you like some more sweet tea? I'll bring you out some more tea to quench, uh, tea to quench your thirst before you, you go on your way. He gladly accepted. When Althea returned, she saw Hempful staring up at the second floor of the house. He asked her, quote, is that your mother up there in the window with the candle? Althea went cold. Mm. She knew exactly what window he was talking about. She also knew what this meant. Now, again, it's night. The candle was lit. When Althea turned to look, though, at the window, she yeah. saw nothing. There was no one there. Mm. She turned back to Hemphill, and he looked kind of mildly shocked. Mm -hmm. Kind of like rubbed his eyes from the heat and the stress, and like, so she took that to mean it disappeared in front of him. Right. But he just sort of mumbled something about, gosh, that old lady, old lady sure can move fast for someone her age. And he drank the tea and went on his way. Mm. Athea watched him drive away, waving very kindly, but her smile was hiding the guilt and fear yeah. that she felt inside. Because there was more to the legend of Granny Z than just the frequent appearances in the window on the second floor of Coffeyville. Most times, she was spotted, she held a candle in her hand. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, rarely, that candle was lit. Most of the time, it was not. It never seemed, by the way, the matter if it was day or night, if the candle was lit or not lit. Mm -hmm. It was lit sometimes in the day and not lit sometimes at night. Right. That wasn't the reason it was lit or not. If it was lit, the person who saw it invariably <gasps> died within one year. Oh, no. Always, every huh. time. Remember the Jed back a while ago? So James Henfel, he was killed in a car accident nine months later, still trying to sell above-ground pools. Pools, <laughs> above pools to people who couldn't afford them. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, he was not, he was the second, but he was not even the only recorded victim of this apparent curse, or maybe it's an omen, it's hard to say what it is. 
The other, the other most famous one who was a non-family member, really the only other one, was Nico Zamp- Zampesi or Zampesi. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. He was some kind of a distant cousin of the Gibbards, and he was visiting the Kentucky farm with his mother when he was about 20 years old. This is in late 1941. He was from the big city of Memphis, so he wasn't used to going to bed and turning in as early as they did, as the household did out there in the farm country. So he would just sort of wander around the grounds outside smoking, you know, until midnight or so. So he did this on his, uh, one of the nights he was there. The next morning, he was having, the, for him, the very unusual breakfast of, of grits and toast, which was buttered before it was broiled, which I've had and it freaked me out. <laughs> He seems like, wait, what's happening? You're doing the wrong sequence, (laughs) and you're broiling it? Don't you have a toaster? So he, over this breakfast, he asked about the old lady up late holding a candle in the window, staring out at that big tree in front of the house. Oh, no. A lit candle. Uh Uh-oh. The table just went silent, (gasps) but no one had the heart to say anything to Nico. Well, of course not. Yeah. That, if I was like Nico... And I just said, oh, yeah, old lady with the lit candle. And the whole table went silent. <laughs> yeah. What's I, going on like, here? Excuse me. Uh, my time here is done. I'm leaving now. Yeah, exactly. Well, just a few weeks later, what happened? He died. He died. Pearl Harbor. Oh. Pearl Harbor shit. was attacked. Nico, his was... patriotic dander up, said, I'm going to join the Navy and go fight this war. Hell no. The family begged him not to. They've seen this story yeah. before. But... He did anyway. Nico Zampesi was a seaman on the USS Yorktown. <laughs> that was the only American aircraft carrier that was sunk during the Battle of Midway in June of oh, 1942, just damn. a few months later. Well, I feel like that's kind of a, just a coincidence. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, the car crash is a little more ominous yeah. than he joined the Navy and died. And died still. <laughs> it's he, still. Yeah. It, that is interesting. That's true. That's but true. the car crash is a little more like, wow. Yeah. yeah, that's true. And the other one, they, two of them died in war. Yeah. And one died in not war. So in not war. There are family stories of others that were supposedly died, but these are the only ones that are verified, at, in, verified in the sense of being in, in contemporaneous newspapers, I right. guess. Right. Local newspapers. So there's like stories of family members dying yes. after seeing the lit candle, but it's not as easy to confirm. You really can't. Right. It's just, it's just oh, yeah, old, didn't know what, old Uncle Bob, Bob, whatever, see that? It's, it's not clear at all. Yeah. So what was Granny Z's ghost doing in that window with a candle? Killing people. Some people considered it, this as a curse, that she was yeah. cursing them. Some saw it, though, more of an omen. She mm-hmm. was, I don't know, from the other side. She knew who was going to die and when they're going to die. So yeah. she Maybe. gave them a warning or something like that. I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, because I don't think Granny Z was evil. I don't, I don't think, think she so. was evil, too. She no. knew the pain of losing yes. a loved one. I don't think she would ever want to inflict that on someone else. I, I hope not. Either. If I know Granny Z, and I do, and I, I don't do. think she would. At this point. There were some embellishments, too, or at least some apparent embellishments. On rare occasions, she was said to hold a skull in her hand instead, oh. of, a, instead of a candle. Huh. And, and a the story, Well, the story was that that was the skull of the last person that had died from oh. one of her curses or omens. That's a stretch. That was probably just made up. Yes. Most yeah. I don't so believe sounds that creepy. Yeah, it does sound creepy. I don't creepy think Granny Z would do that. I don't even. No. She doesn't want to scare people. No, no. no. Skull's pretty scary. Yeah. Although later, if you knew the, the, the mythology of it and you saw the lit candle, that would scare the shit out of you, too. Yeah, but she... She, that wasn't her purpose. Well, and that's another reason, too. These, these three that I told are important because if you were a family member and you knew the story and you saw the lit candle or thought you did, you know, it could impact you. These mm-hmm. people had no idea, never yeah. heard of it, and they still die. Right. In later years, the sightings became more and more sporadic, and finally the farmhouse fell into disuse, and the family moved away, sold the land, uh, development encroached, but the area is still to this day pretty rustic. Today, though, the house still stands, and it's been refurbished. Though the surrounding whole Coffeeville estate, the whole spread that's been reduced just a few acres around the house, it is, of course, a bed and breakfast. Oh, of course naturally. it is. Yeah. Can we go there? The, I would <laughs> like to put it on our, our list. We okay. should. The proprietors loudly advertise the story of Granny Z, the ghost in the window. Of course. It's, a, it's on their yeah. website. The owners regularly organize ghost-watching vigils on warm evenings. In the spring oh and the summer my. for people there. That's when it's most, that's the tourist season anyway. So they have this little plaza out there around that, that coffee tree that's still there. And they have a few tables set up. And they, you know, you, you stay up well past midnight mm-hmm. looking at the window. 
see if you can see Granny Z's ghost with or without a candle, with or without it being lit. Mm-hmm. Of well, these days though, you can be served tapas and cocktails while you. <laughs> that do sounds your, honestly your like a lovely evening. I yes, would, I would, hundred percent do that. A nice summer evening. Yeah. Hell yeah, that's I my favorite weather. So, now, now your mission, should you accept it, listeners, <laughs> is to decide which of these stories is a true, real thing, and which are not. So go onto the website. Carrie's going to tell you in a second where it is. On Facebook. And vote on face. I'll oh, go on Facebook. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. And then can we do it on the website? No, just Facebook. No, it's okay. Be on Facebook. Sorry. Do it on Instagram. Can you do it on Instagram too? You could do a poll on your story. Do it, babe. Do it. Carrie's the Instagram. Do you know how queen. to do that? I feel like Emma is going to show her. I know that. how to do it, but doesn't it go away? After 24 hours, yes. Oh, well, yeah. let's just do it on, do yeah. it on Facebook. We're, we'll we're, we're going to count. Facebook. We're going to count the votes. And we're gonna, and, or, or if you want to leave a comment on your theory about one or, or the other, please do. We'll, we'll maybe cover some of those. And we're going to reveal in about Six months 10 days. And, oh. so, so this is coming out on a Thursday, April 1st. We will load up as a weird bit on the Sunday after the next Thursday of what the true... <laughs> story is and also give some results from our poll so please I have do to a wait Facebook that poll. long you have to wait that long yeah Fuck. yes sorry you can about vote that. you can go to facebook yeah, yeah go on facebook and vote and then you'll find out on april what are they be 10th or 11th or whatever yeah. it's going to be that yeah. sucks so until then listeners so wait yes. they're they're choosing the one that's true that's true yes. exactly okay. yeah we'll just have abc have the title. oh that's a real story that's the yeah the ones the, the yeah. real story or just the made-up ones just yes. just the real story so you're choosing the real story yeah Okay. Okay. Thank you. Perfect. Until next time. Ta-ta.